the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Blessed be Yahweh, my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. Psalm 144, verse 1. Welcome to The Antithesis. My name is Owen Strand, and I will be your host. Today, a number of commentators have argued the church finds itself not in a positive world regarding Christianity, not in a neutral world regarding Christianity, but in a negative world. This framing is derived ultimately from a social philosopher named Charles Taylor, and Aaron Wren in the evangelical community is the one who has done a good bit to develop this idea and promote it. And I think Wren is onto something when he argues uh, via Taylor that the evangelical church of 2022 is in what is called a negative world. What does this mean? Well, in very quick form, if the church is in a positive world, then being a Christian and claiming to be a Christian in various venues of life gains you an advantage. It's seen as a positive thing that you are a Christian, and so that gains you social advantages. In a neutral world, it's not necessarily a great thing to be a Christian, and it's not necessarily a terrible thing to be a Christian. There is definitely a space in a neutral world, a neutral culture, if you will, for you to be a meaningful Christian. In a negative world, it is a decided disadvantage to claim the name of Jesus Christ, and especially to live according to the Word of God in a strong and declarative way, to preach the gospel, uh, to be a bold, sold-out Christian in the public square and in different environments is not a positive good, nor does it leave you in a kind of neutral place in at least some environments. No, it takes things away from you. It puts you in a bad position. And Wren has argued, along with others, that this is where evangelical Christians and Reformed Christians are today. So we need to understand four truths on today's episode. We need to understand, as the church, that I believe we are in a negative world whether we like it or not. Your feelings don't have anything to do with it. You may not want to be in a negative world as a Christian. You may want people to understand that you are a thoughtful believer, that you don't hate anybody, um, that you want only good for your fellow man, uh, that you actually do a good bit on, a, on an annual basis to try to help people around you. Yes, you hold to an exclusivist understanding of Jesus Christ as the only Savior, and you believe in the inerrancy and sufficiency of the Word, but nonetheless, you're not somebody who who stands out in front of public buildings picketing unbelievers. You, you genuinely want to love unbelievers. If that's you, I get it. That's me as well. And yet, what the evangelical church today needs to do is sit down, uh, pour a hot cup of tea, compose itself, and reckon with this fundamental reality. Our feelings don't matter. Our opinion doesn't really matter. 
in many respects in America and beyond, the church is in a negative world. Being a believer gains you cultural disadvantages. It puts you in the cultural penalty box. It's not a good thing in the secular workforce to, to be an evangelical Christian. You're the one in the HR training session. You're the one in the boardroom that uh, the folks are speaking of carefully, in some cases, as uh, holding back the company. You're the one in the public square who is fomenting intolerance and hatred and white supremacy and prejudice and on and on the list goes. You're the one that young evangelicals are deconstructing uh, because of. It's your uh, strong understanding of the Christian faith that is leading them to need to push away from such arrogant certainty and deconstruct in a humble space of their own choosing. Listen, you're the culprit. You're going to be the culprit. Your kids are going to be the culprit. Your grandkids are going to be the culprit. Unless God does something absolutely miraculous in this country and beyond, which he could very well do. We're seeing some very fascinating cultural twists and turns today. I'm recording just a few days after Elon Musk bought Twitter. And so that's altogether reversing things on Twitter. As my very own, very humble follower count could tell you, if it could speak, things are changing. So we never want to believe that history is traveling in only one direction as Christians. We never want to think that there aren't going to be twists and turns to the broader story of humanity, our own country, the church's fate, and on it goes. We, we need to not be doomsdayists, I believe, with regard to our cultural fate. But we also do need to reckon with the reality that in the American Secular Academy, in the entertainment industry, in the business world, uh, in the political world, it is, at least in a good number of places, not everywhere, a negative reality to be a strong, convictional, born-again believer. And if you felt that in some way, if you and your church are maligned in your community, n- not because you've done something stupid or evil, but simply because you hold to biblical doctrine, and that has put you in some way in the crosshairs, you have experienced the cold, harsh wind of a negative world. If you have felt the need even just to self-censor, if you're a university professor or a doctor or a lawyer or a public school teacher or any other number of things, you're in politics, and you've self-censored because no no one has uh, crashed down upon you uh, in opposition to what you have said, but simply you recognize, if I say what I actually believe as a Christian in this setting, I am going to be opposed. I am at the very least going to put myself in a perilous position regarding my colleagues here. That's because you're in a negative world. That's because it's a disadvantage to you where you are to be a Christian. If you're in Silicon Valley, uh, if you're in New York City, if you're in cultural hotspots across the globe, to be a clear believer in London, in Paris, in Hong Kong, in other places, is not going to get you awards and recognition and front-page profiles on the website. It's going to get you a storm of opposition, canceled in many cases, and even persecuted for your faith. So, our first truth to reckon with here is very simply that we must reckon with this truth. We must know 
that our feelings, our very strong desire to not be seen as negative as a Christian, don't got nothing to do with it. The world is as the world is, and you and your feelings don't shape the world. You're in a negative world. You've got to recognize this. You're in the game, and you're down by 15. You may not have wanted the game to be that way, but you are. That is the way the game is going. Our second truth here is that we need to understand that the former way of dealing with the world's opposition and even with what was called a neutral world failed. It's not sufficient for this time. In truth, it wasn't sufficient for its own age, but it's certainly not equipped to help you survive in the the war that we find ourselves today in 2022. So many churches, so many Christians have struggled tremendously in the last five years, two years, choose your time frame. There's a variety of reasons why. Uh, one of them would be there's been a tremendous surge of evil all over the world. And so we very much understand and empathize with Christians who are suffering for righteousness sake and for no good reason. But we also need to recognize that at least a good number of Christians were not prepared for the negative world. They still aren't prepared. What was one of the old models of living in the neutral world of, let's say, the 80s, 90s, and aughts? Well, one of the most popular proposals in academic and intellectual circles was um, given by a very brilliant thinker named James Davison Hunter, who taught for many years at the University of Virginia. And Davison Hunter, a professing evangelical, argued for what is called faithful presence. And what he basically meant is that it is a very good thing for Christians to be in all sorts of influential places in culture and society. They should know that it is a serious victory simply to be a presence there. And so their work need not be consumed with trying to be a kind of bold, sold-out witness. That may happen, it may not. The focus of the Christian in influential places, in sectors of power, is to just be faithful, just be a Christian where you are. Again, I'm not meaning be a really bold, controversial Christian where you are. Hunter was uh, an academician, is an academician. And so what he was especially thinking of, I, I sense, was uh, for Christians in academia, uh, the, the best game plan to use is to be good at your field. Um, I'm in academics. I'm a professor myself at Grace Bible Theological Seminary in Conway, Arkansas. And so I know this game. I, I did my undergrad at a, a strong, academically strong institution in Maine called Bowdoin College. And uh, so I, again, I've seen this up close and personal for Hunter. Let's say he's, he's talking to his ideas that is speak to the young, thoughtful Christian scholar. Um, they want to make a difference in the world. So they get their PhD and they, they, they win the lottery and they get a tenure track job and, um, they're at a secular school and the way to survive there, the way to, the way to thrive, the way to, the way to live, uh, and do your craft is to just be a good scholar and uh, be a, be a positive community member. And um, you don't hide your convictions, but you're not 
storming the castle with your convictions either. You're a faithful presence. There's a version of hunter's mentality, hunter's approach um, that could work in different places. Um, but there's a version of it that translates very simply, whether you're in the academy or the business world or the entertainment sector or politics, it translates quite simply to be nice, be a nice Christian. And that's where a ton, even now, of evangelical and reformed types are. And it's really sad to watch, honestly, because they think that a version of faithful presence is going to preserve what influence they have and their living, their job, and they're going to make it. Well, listen, there are all sorts of twists and turns in public life. So we have a presidential election coming up. Yay, joy, in about two years. And, you know, things could really swing in this country. A lot of us have watched what uh, Ron DeSantis has done as governor of Florida in the last few years, for example. That is an excellent example of uh, how a governor can shape things uh, very powerfully for the good in his state. And there could be a lot more coming uh, at the at a, at a higher level in that regard. And, and so there are twists and turns. Let's let that be said. But even if a conservative is elected president of America, there is still a tremendous presence of the negative world that will endure in our society and culture. Um, the left, for example, will go on the offensive once more. And the left, frankly, is pretty good at going on the offensive. They they were absolutely merciless against Donald Trump, uh, who sometimes, you know, made his own trouble. And yet they were absolutely merciless against him. He couldn't do anything right. And so um, we need to know that there could be a twist and turn coming up in this society, in this country. And yet there is not going to be reciprocity for those Christians who think that if they simply are nice, and basically inoffensive to those around them, they'll make it. In a negative world, you are not in a restaurant. You are in a war zone. In a war zone, you can be nice, but it won't matter. You are going to have to be tough. You are going to have to have other traits going for you to survive, let alone thrive, in a war zone. What I'm not saying here is be mean as a Christian. That's not the corollary. But it is to say that just being nice and being a positive presence and uh, being a pleasant person and not speaking too loudly and not causing too much offense is not a winning strategy in the negative world. If you have thought it is, abandon it right now. In such a position as a Christian, and now I'm thinking a little bit more theologically, one of the major moves you make, as you would expect, as I'm framing this out, is that you would play down the edges of strong biblical doctrine. And again, here is where a good number of churches and Christians in the West are. Here is what they still are thinking is going to save them. They think that if they don't declare their convictions too much, that they will stay out of the penalty box. They think that if they are known by what they are for and not by what they are against, 
that will preserve their influence. Things will stay good for them and the next generation. We always want to be positively proclaiming Jesus Christ and celebrating the joys of the Christian life. We want to be a people known for hope, not for gloomy misery. Let all of that be said. And all of us fail in these regards and have real sin to repent of and real growth that God needs to work out in our life. You just need to know, though, that it's not a winning strategy. Fundamentally, it's not a biblically faithful strategy to think that you are going to be able to preserve your Christian faith and your cultural influence in the way you enjoyed it in past decades if you are a Christian, but not too serious a Christian. That is a, speaking of misery, that is an absolutely miserable way to be a Christian. And it contrasts 180 degrees from the approach of Jesus Christ and his apostles in the New Testament. They don't, they don't pull their punches. They don't hide what they stand for. They aren't trying to only be known as a positive, pleasant presence by the people around them. They do all kinds of good. They work miracles and wonders. They teach the doctrine that saves the soul for eternity, the gospel of Jesus Christ. They preach the blood of Jesus Christ, which satisfies the Father's just wrath and washes the sinner clean. They preach the resurrection as objective fact, which is the very means by which believers in the Lord Jesus Christ enter eternal life, even now, even as we await the culmination of it. They go to sinners and they call them to repentance all through the Gospels and the book of Acts. So straight up, we are being proposed, we have been proposed, a different way of being Christian than the New Testament emphasizes. This, Yes, the stakes are that high. And the neutral world posture of just carve out, again, a nice niche in your community. The old fundamentalist ways are gone. Now start up an art gallery or have a music night. Be known with the arts community as being positive or just build connections to sports programs. Whatever it may be, be nice. Just be known for having a smile on your face, play down your doctrine, and everything will be fine. In at least a good number of contexts, that approach has failed already, and it will fail. We saw all of this come to a head when the left woke mob came for I'm, I am not making this up, Louis Giglio, over biblical sexual ethics. Do you remember this? Several years ago, Louis Giglio was uh, exposed by the left as having stood for biblical marriage. And I believe in some form having spoken against homosexuality, framing it as sinful in some form. Louis Giglio is not known then or now in the evangelical and reformed community for having a lot to say about biblical sexuality. He's known for, for different stands, stances, and emphases. But even just finding sermons in the corpus of Louis Giglio 
any sermon at all that indicated that he stood for biblical sexuality meant that he needed to be canceled. And indeed he was. And the backlash was absolutely unremittingly severe. That was a test. That was a test for what was coming. If a man who has not made biblical sexuality the focus of his ministry, at the very least, can be canceled over his stand, what is going to happen to those who do stand for biblical sexuality clearly and unequivocally and regularly in their own ministry? What we were seeing in that event several years ago was a test run for the negative world. A negative culture, same basic idea, a negative culture has gained tremendous ground in America and the West in recent years. And many of you will know that um, I've written a book on wokeness called Christianity and Wokeness that tracked one of the fronts of the negative world against God, God's truth, and God's church. Wokeness is nothing other than a poisoning of the neutral world and a recasting of the neutral world as a negative world. Think about it. In a neutral world, people basically adhere to a kind of secular humanist credo where they they get along with one another. They don't bring a lot of exclusivist truth claims into the public square, into politics, that sort of thing. So Christians would shear their faith of the Bible, for example, and only talk about natural law or reason or these sorts of things if they're going to be a positive presence in the public square in such a framing. And that's okay. They can do that. They shouldn't bring their Bible with them into the public square, into their vocation, but they can bring a kind of sheared down Christian conviction with them, provided they are very, very careful about that. And they always, at all times, use an inside voice. But what we have seen is that the negative world in which we find ourselves does not play by the old rules. And so bringing any form of Christian conviction into the public square is going to put a target on your back. But not just sold out Christianity. In the negative world, poisoned by wokeness in which we live, even believing that America, for example, has made racial progress means that you are advancing the cause of white supremacy in a direct and wicked way. That is how strongly wokeness has recast America and the West. If you just affirm something like, uh, at least a lot of people today aren't acting and speaking in terribly racist ways, in part, by the way, because the cost of racism is so incredibly high and to a serious degree, that's very good. But um, the cost of, of and what I mean is even the suspicion of racism will get you fired and canceled and maligned today. And so things have things have overshot in in that last regard. But we want. We want evil to be um, opposed in a society. 
the cost of racism has has gone way up in America in the last 30, 40 years. And what that means is, yes, absolutely. America has made tremendous progress against racism in its public life. Racism hasn't vanished, for example, but it has very much been opposed at the public level. And in a common grace sense, Christians give thanks to God for that. But what what wokeness does, Ibram Kendi, Robin D'Angelo, and other voices, is they gaslight America and they say, absolutely not. No, you people who think and say that America has made racial progress and you yourself are not a racist, you are showing whatever skin color you have that you are bound to racism and a white supremacist in actionable form. Okay, that, dear friends, is the negative world. The negative world takes out all common grace from a society. The negative world takes out basic human decency, and it poisons the entire public order, and it causes people to see one another as enemies and antagonists when in reality they have no natural cause for such antagonism. The master of the shifting of the positive world or the neutral world to the negative world in the last couple hundred years would be Karl Marx. Karl Marx is an absolute genius of unneeded hostility. And it is Marx's diabolical ideas that have caused more human suffering and death in the last couple centuries than any other person on the planet. Welcome to Marxism, history's most successful bad idea. What Marx sought to do is shift the UK and the broader Western world from either a positive world or a neutral world to a negative world. And Marx succeeded, tragically, in many respects. And he's going to keep succeeding, even from the grave, if we ourselves do not fight his descendants at every turn. Not fighting against flesh and blood, ultimately out of hatred, but fighting the work uh, that evil would accomplish in the world. We need to understand a third truth here. All the challenge I've been sketching here is actually an opportunity. It's an opportunity. You understand this? This is a chance for us to stop wussing around, to stop simping, to stop begging for a seat at the table. This is an opportunity for Christianity in the West and beyond to clear its throat and take courage. We have an opportunity. Things have gotten harder for Christians in many places. So what are we going to do in response? We have really a couple of options. We can go quieter and and go back to the old approach and once again try to be nice enough that we claw back some cultural respectability. Or we can find our identity in Almighty God, stand on the solid rock of the Word of God, Love all the good doctrine of God, 1 Timothy 4. Proclaim Christ in boldness and love to a sin-cursed world and watch as God works. We have 
an opportunity today. You have an opportunity now. Your church has an opportunity to shift out of the old, soft, weak, defeated approach to the negative world. You yourself as a Christian, your marriage, your family, your Christian school, your college, your university, the business you serve, you being involved in politics, on and on the list goes. You have an opportunity right now. You can shift out of the unbiblical and soundly defeated approach to the negative world of niceified Christianity. And you can shift into what I call fearless witness. We don't really, at the end of the day, need faithful presence. I'm not against a Christian being high up in a corporation or a school or the entertainment world or politics. I love that. But you can't think that just being nice in that environment, as I have been at pains to stress, is going to save your head. And really, that's not ultimately what you're there for. You're not just there to hold down a desk. You are there to be a fearless, sold-out witness to Jesus Christ, as if you must decrease and he must increase. That is the entire focus and goal, like John the Baptist, of your existence and mine as a Christian. I saw some weeks ago that Wren rightly identified the negative world approach, but then strangely signaled that we need a critical theory for the days before us. As I said earlier, Wren is a sharp thinker. Uh, I don't know him well, but I want to be on record as saying we don't at all need a critical theory. I'm guessing he and I, if we sat down and talked, would probably, I think, come to relative agreement here. I'm guessing. And critical theory, let it be said, means lots of different things for lots of different people. But let me repeat myself. We don't need critical theory. What we need is biblical theology. What we need is convictional truth from the word of God. That's what we need. That's the game plan. That's what we're drawing up on the whiteboard here as a coach sitting on the floor, sitting on a chair on the floor, getting ready to send the players back in the game. We're not just playing defense, which is what the the faithful presence model really at the end of the day tried to do. Just basically hold your position. No, 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 no. Who told you only to play defense? We're playing offense. We're, we're giving the world fearless witness powered by the grace of God for the glory of God. That's what we're about here. We have an opportunity. We have an opportunity, especially those of us who are raising children, raising up the next generation. We have an opportunity to, to teach and model something new and different for them. Our America now, the America or the West or wherever you may be across the world, People listen to this tiny little podcast in a lot of different places. Wherever you are, things probably were different when you were growing up, if you're at least in your 30s or 40s or 50s or above. The world you're bringing children into or helping to bring children into or watching grandchildren enter, it's a different world. At least a, a good number of us were raised in a positive world or a, or a neutral world. 
framing. And now we're raising our children, at least in a good number of cases, not everywhere, in the negative world. That does not mean we raise our children to be fearful, angry, unable to engage with unbelievers, unable to conduct themselves in public because they are so sheltered. They really have never had even the faintest sliver of a contact with with unbelievers and with secular ideals and places. No, we don't need that. What we do need is robust and rigorous Christian discipleship. And we need to train the next generation and then the one after that not to expect that if they are just nice and smile a lot and use the aforementioned inside voice and wear pastel colors, at least on odd days of the week, that everybody is going to love them and welcome them and they'll never face any real opposition for being a Christian at all. That never was true, but it at least was more true for a good number of spots around the world years ago than it is now. Today is a day to raise warriors for Christ. Today is a day to raise disciples as God works who do not fear the world, who do not expect the world to applaud them for being a Christian, who are not looking all for any verification of their identity and their worth from the world and who instead see themselves effectively, whether or not they ever set foot in a so-called missions context as a missionary. That's what we need. We need to help our kids understand in a lot of places that they're basically missionaries. I don't mean that they're formally, formally a missionary. We very much believe in commissioning men to go lead out in missions around the world. And then families go with that and others get involved. And that's to God's glory. And we love that. We love missions. So we're not collapsing missions into basic familial discipleship. But we are saying Christians need to inculcate a spirit of discipleship in their kids such that their kids think of themselves not as fundamentally like the culture and just like their neighbors and therefore owed something by the society around them, but think of themselves as strangers and pilgrims who are here to love Christ and love neighbor, preach the gospel, live for the glory of Jesus Christ in a world that hates him. And this means, thirdly, Along these lines, under this third point, that is that we need to rejoice. We ourselves and need to model this for our kids in being slandered for our ethics, biblical doctrine and Christian life. Listen, if you get broken into pieces anytime somebody opposes you as a Christian, that's not easy. And that God, God's grace is real when that happens to you. And it's hard for all of us. But if you just are are unable to function in this negative world. Expect that your kids aren't going to be able to function as well. Expect that others you're discipling or are in contact with are going to have the same reaction. And they're either going to just reject Christianity or they're going to end up a miserable Christian. And we don't want that. So we need to rejoice in um, standing against the world for the world. And we're going to need to play hardball. I mentioned DeSantis earlier. He's giving us a great model 
of how to be a happy warrior in the public square. God give us more happy warriors, but of how to also give absolutely not a centimeter to his opponents. You have to toughen up. Hey, church, toughen up. Toughen up by the grace of God that is in you. Do you do you remember the example of the apostles? Do you remember the example of Paul, for example? Have you been reading your Bible recently? Do you remember what Paul endured as he took the gospel on his different missionary journeys? I, just to reset yourself and to reset, I'm not saying this in scorn, to reset yourself, your, your, your family, to reset your church. Think about a passage like this. Bring this before those around you. Bring this to those you are discipling. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. This is the LSB I'm reading from. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have spent in the deep. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the desolate places, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brothers. In labor and hardship, in many sleepless nights, in starvation and thirst, often hungry, in cold and without enough clothing. Apart from external things, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Wow. The Apostle Paul was a Christ-centered man and a gospel-loving man. Do you understand what the work of God in the Apostle Paul did? Do you understand how tough Paul was? Uh, No, friend, Christian, grapple with this. Read this passage. We have all been sold as part of uh, the problems that have ailed the church in the last 10 to 20 years, a very soft form of Christianity. We've adapted the church to the neutral world, and we've tried to adapt the church to the negative world. And as we have played down our doctrine, and as we have tried to soften the truth we stand for so that we don't take unnecessary fire, part of what has happened is we have lost, well, we've lost manhood in the church, basically, in a meaningful form. We have so many males and so few men. But we have also, accordingly, lost one of the core elements of biblical manhood, God-centered toughness. Men are to model this. It's not that only men are called to be tough and women are called to be, you know, a shrinking flower that can't even stand up for more than three seconds. That's not what the Bible teaches in the least. But it is that men are called to model God-centered toughness. And we have so little of that. We have so few men who will put themselves on the line today. We have so few men who will stand against evil. We have so few men who will speak against falsehood. We have so few men who will be tough in a profoundly grace-driven way. We just are in absolute famine with regard to all of this, all of this God-centered toughness, to put it under that framing. 
And what we need to do is not just flagellate ourselves and get really, really grumpy and never take any Tylenol. No, what we need to do, brothers and sisters, is we need to go back to Scripture and we need to recover what Scripture clearly offers us. Scripture is a book that in many senses is all about recovery and forgiveness and growth and change and maturity and the upward call that is in Jesus Christ. Scripture is a book that continually reveals to us that we are not sufficient for these things. We're not the strong man. Paul is saying in this passage, 2 Corinthians 11, that he's he's weak because he's up against opponents in Corinth, the super apostles so-called, who are positing themselves as strong. And he's saying, in myself, I am weak. But that's not all Paul's saying. That's where a lot of evangelical discussions end. Paul is saying, I'm weak, but in God, I'm strong. There's a corollary here to Christ himself, to our Christology. Was Jesus gentle and lowly in heart? Yes. What a glorious biblical principle. Did that mean that Jesus only displayed and demonstrated gentleness and lowliness? No. No, it did not. Jesus was a warrior savior. Jesus is a warrior savior. Jesus was and is a king. Jesus himself was tremendously tough. He endured horrific hardship. He died on a cross for us. So we need, pulling a lot of different threads together here, we need to recover God-centered toughness. If we will do so, then we are queued up to, in the rightly understood and framed way, play hardball. What do I mean? Well, if you take a stand in your community for biblical sexuality against transgenderism, against homosexuality coming into schools, let's say, you're, you're going to have a storm of opposition from probably the local left and even the national left, and perhaps even, if you're especially highly favored, the international left. And what you will do if you adhere to a niceified Christianity is you'll back down and you'll apologize and you'll try to show all the different ways that you're not what they say you are, and, uh, and you'll just flagellate yourself and you won't really offer any real convictional witness, and on it goes. If you are adhering to God-centered toughness because you recognize you're in the negative world, just like the first century, then what you're going to do is not give an inch. You're not going to present yourself as perfect, but you are absolutely going to be unflinching and opposing evil. You're going to hold your ground. You're going to stand firm. You're not going to move a muscle. You're going to show evil in whatever form it's being manifested that by the grace of God in you, by the strength of God in you, you have a stronger will than the forces of darkness. There is a gospel-driven ferocity to you. Not that you attack unbelievers as on a battlefield. God calls us to battlefields, of course. So that's a, an appropriate context, rightly understood. But for most of us, that's not what we're about, many of us anyway. And so we're not here fundamentally to hate unbelievers, but we are going out of love for neighbor to oppose our neighbor 
if the local drag queens try to do story time at the local library, not because we're trying to win political elections or something like this, we're going to try to stop that. We're going to do anything we can to stand against that. And when they try to assassinate our reputation in the press or whatever they may do, we're not going to flinch. We're in the negative world. We don't expect anything from the world. We're not framing our identity at all according to the world's approval. This is all because, fourth and finally for this podcast, we're, we're only back in the age of the apostles here. What do I mean? Being in a negative world is not new. It doesn't require any developed critical theory or new academic approach. It doesn't require at all a merger of Christian thought and any form of secular thought. It simply requires that we stand on God's word and be bold Christians, pray unceasingly, ask God to work, love everyone we can love, preach all the truth we can preach, and leave it to God. Think about a text like Acts 5. The apostles get in serious trouble in Jerusalem, don't they? And what do Peter and the apostles say in Acts 5.29 before the, the Jewish council? We must obey God rather than men. After saying this, after proclaiming Christ, the council, verse 33, heard this and they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Hello. Is it new for sold out Christians to be in a negative world? Is this a unique experience? No. This is the experience of the apostles in the first century. They're in a much worse negative world than we are right now. And yet they are playing hardball, by which I mean they are not yielding to evil. They are not getting opposition and then trimming their sails and apologizing and being quieter and toning down the volume. Absolutely not. They leave the council. Acts 541. And what, what attitude do they have? They rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, the name, it just says in Acts 5, but it's the name of Jesus. And what do they go on to do? Next verse, Acts 542. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is the playbook. This is discipleship we need to communicate. This is the plan. This is the way. Obey God rather than men. Not out of hate, not out of belligerence. There's much that Caesar asks of us that we happily comply with. But when Caesar takes domain, it does not have from God, we must obey God rather than men. When Caesar or any earthly body responds with rage and even wanting to kill us, we give not an inch. We hold our ground. Not just hold your ground. The apostles hold their ground and then they don't cease teaching and preaching. They go back on offense, brothers and sisters. I have no idea what is coming in America, in the West, in the world. None. 
I am tremendously bad at predicting the future. I'm not going to try. There are major twists and turns in this world that God rules according to the perfect counsel of his will. The Father has the entire world in his hand. He has mapped out everything that is going to happen. He has appointed it all. His Son has claimed the cosmos. The Spirit is at work through the church. We know this. We don't know what's going to happen with governments, countries, nations, societies, and cultures. But we do know what we need. We, we do have what we need. It is not a secular theory. It is not a merger of Christianity and some other ideology, some, some system. It is only to go back to the Word of God and the theology of Scripture and stand for it. Love it. Take joy in it. Proclaim it. And then trust that God will do as God sees fit. Christian, if you don't hear this from others, hear it from me. We're not in a positive world. In many places, we're not even in a neutral world. Stop living according to your feelings. Stop wishing the world was different. Start embracing the board as God has it set up. You are in, in at least a good number of places, a negative world. There is going to be, now and in coming days, serious opposition for standing for God's truth. Count it a small thing when you are persecuted. Rejoice instead that you, like the apostles, are counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And do not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. You are going to face a lot of different scenarios. So am I. So are the children we are raising in the grace of God to know God. And yet, as a banner over the entire enterprise, we confess this privately and publicly. We must obey God rather than men. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.